0: welcome to the religion retold podcast with your host jake oh hello my religious rebels and welcome to the religion retold podcast my name is jake and i'm your host um it's been a while since i've done one of these actually life got a little bit busy um and also I've been a bit slack I'm not gonna lie but uh also I have been researching today's episode and it took me quite quite a bit to get uh, all the research done because it's not a topic that I am familiar with um it's a topic that interests me a lot so I was very happy to do the research and it was very interesting but usually I know almost everything about the topic I'm speaking about. So, it takes me usually around three to four hours, I guess, to like just, you know, reconfirm everything so I'm not leaning on the old bum steer and then, you know, learn some things about different, different religions that aren't generally associated with the topic and just put it all together. So, usually it's about three, three, four, four, five hours of research. And then I usually record it in about two hours. And then, you know, bam. So it's usually about a six hour body of work. Uh, With this one, it was, geez, it was almost 30 hours, I think, of research. And I am in the process of recording it now. So I don't know how long that's going to take because, yeah, I just don't know anything about this topic. So everything was, uh, yeah, fresh, brand new. And I'm hoping that leads to a better podcast because sometimes I think maybe I have a lot of assumed knowledge that may not necessarily be assumed by other people. So, I'm thinking that maybe because I don't know anything about this topic, I'm going to, you know, get really deep into like the basics and, you know, it'll be more thorough. Uh, So, if you are a scholar in the subject. I do apologise uh, because this is probably going to be very much, but very much the basics to start with. But uh, yeah, as we continue, I hope it gets deeper, and then you know, yeah, hopefully, hopefully everything becomes illuminated. But um, yeah, so anyway, today's topic is uh, Mesopotamian religion, um, and this I'm assuming this is going to be part one of. I'm not sure how many parts, maybe three, I think, maybe four, but I'm hoping to keep this one within the hour and a half kind of range. Um, this will definitely be the longest one I've ever done, but yeah, hopefully it's, it's not too long. Um, but the topic is very interesting. Um, I, I think that, uh, Assyrian culture and Arcadian culture and Sumerian culture is, uh, one of the uh, ancient cultures that interests me the most, I would say probably the most. So, it was very interesting to, uh, yeah, research this topic. And I'm thinking this first episode will be just like a basic overview, like what the religion was about, what they kind of believe, just the basics, just to get us rolling. Because when I was researching this, I was thinking I'd do it all as once as like a four or five hour kind of mega episode but then as i got through it i was like this is very complex and you have to kind of have some pre-knowledge to understand like some of the later things that we're going through so i thought maybe it's best to split it up you know you get one episode now you go through it you digest the knowledge then the second one the third one and just keep building and keep continuing so that was that was kind of the idea behind it so, in any case, well, we won't uh, won't muck around and we'll get into it, but uh, yeah, so today's episode is uh, Mesopotamian religion, uh, the basics. So, I guess we'll start with, you know, we've got I think we have to start with a little bit of like Assyrian history because Assyrian history and Assyrian religion are so kind of tied together, you kind of have to understand how... Like what happened in Assyrian history, what happened in their culture, so you can kind of understand the changes that happened. And uh, there's a lo- there is a lot of changes that kind of happen in the religion over time because the religion did go for quite a long time. It it went from 3,500 BC all the way to 400 AD. So that's you know that's quite a long time. That's nearly 4,000 years. And it went through like a ton of changes culturally, religiously, like who the governance was, the uh, ethics of the people at the time. And the religion kind of changed along with these changes in society because the religion itself wasn't influenced by other religions or other movements or other things that were happening about the place like you know, certain religions like Sikh is influenced by Hindu and Islam and Christianity is influenced by the Mesopotamian religions. And, you know, there's a lot of religions that are influenced by other religions, but this religion is kind of, it's kind of an isolate. It's its own thing. And, and the way that it forms and morphs and changes is based on the society to which it's in because they're only influencing themselves. And it, it kind of is developed by the people's ideals. So, the way that the people think, the way that they believe, what they think is moral, what they don't think is moral. And that's kind of how the religion formed and changed and morphed. And it's it's interesting from how it started to how it ended. It's it's kind of the same thing in a sense, but then it's kind of completely different in the same way. It's not It's not exactly like Christianity because Christianity has like... A doctrine and if you went back to say like the time of Martin Luther or the time of Jesus or like you know things are changing and like it's not the same in a sense but it's got the same kind of basis and like it's kind of it's it's kind of similar but kind of different in Mesopotamian religion because they don't have a set doctrine so if the people change dramatically, the religion can change dramatically because there's no set doctrine written out that says you must do this even if society moves on, which is kind of the problem we're having in society at the moment in which religion, our religions, if you are from a, a Christian country, the Christian religion that has been practiced, does not match our societal norms at this point in time. So, there's such a dichotomy and a conflict between the religions that are practiced and the way that society feels about the world. And this wasn't really the case. It's thought with these Mesopotamian religions because the religion morphed with society. So, that's probably why it was... It lasted so long because it just kept up with society the whole time. And if there was a change in society, then the religion would keep up with it. And um, it's it's debatable whether it was vice versa, because it, the religion didn't really run the people's lives in a sense, but the people created the religion, which in turn ran their lives. So, it's kind of interesting. They created their own cage in a sense. But yeah, so it's 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 very interesting. I've never ever seen anything like it in the sense that there is no doctrine, there is no you must do this but there was there was a like it was, it was, it's like exactly like any other religion there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of things you have to do, there's a lot of things you have to follow. you got the guilt you got you got kind of all the things that religion kind of enforces in in the world today and you know in the past but it's kind of self-created it has sense so it's interesting that, that the religion is self-created to be dogmatic, which I think is interesting. And I don't know what that says about people throughout the ages, but anywho, that's kind of that's kind of how it works. And this has been going on, you know, since the f- the fourth century BC, basically. And and this it started in Sumeria, and Sumeria is kind of this, <clears throat> I guess, cradle of civilization of like intelligence in a sense, because before Sumeria, there's no records of anyone writing. There's no records of anyone really doing anything. So, oh, that's not exactly true because there's Gobekli Tepe and that mountainous temple in Indonesia. And like, there's, there's evidence of people building things, but there's no evidence of who they are or what they said or anything like that. So, like, Sumeria is basically the first culture that we can identify as being something because they invented cuneiform, which is a writing system based on lines and triangles. And it's, honestly, it's really cool. I love it. I've, I've looked into learning it many, many times. I think it's awesome. Um, but yeah, it's the first recorded writing. And with writing, you know, the people write about what's important to them. Um, especially in a society that is developing writing because only the most intelligent people write. So, the super intelligent people write about what is interesting to them. And let's say you have, they didn't use paper, they use clay and they use reeds and they would mark the clay with the reeds and then they'd bake it. And that was how you would make a page of writing, I guess, is what you would call it. So these super intelligent people that have invented this writing system, it's kind of based on like sounds. So, you'll say, let's say the word tau, you'll have T, A, L and that's how the writing system would be based. And it's based on the sounds that that they made on the language. So, they would just write out these lines and these triangles and they'd put them on clay and they'd fire them and then you've got a sheet of paper. So, inherently that takes a long time probably pretty expensive to do for the time. So, you know, they're only really writing about things that are important or things that the people who can afford to make it think are important. And oftentimes religions one of the, uh, you know, the top dogs when it comes to money and power. So, you know, they left a lot of religious records, of course. And so in Sumerian culture, they, they write about a lot of things. Like you have the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, you know, a story. Or, or myth or legend or, you know, fact, depending on how you believe it. And they've got religious writings. And then there's like cuneiform tablets that say, um, okay, so let's say you have a, a, a basket of wheat or a basket of apples, and you're going to lend, uh, I don't know, Gilgamesh 10 apples. So you'd get this tiny little bit of clay and you'd write out, okay, Gilgamesh owes me 10 apples and you'd put your mark and he'd put his mark and then you would both take a copy. And so they would do like legal transactions on these cuneiform tablets. And it's interesting to see like when you go to like the Louvre or like a, a place that has a lot of these clay tablets, a lot of them are just like... You know, I bought this land from this person. I sold this bull to this person. It's like it was like those receipts and transactions, and a lot of things that they've found are like pretty mundane. Like they're they're good for learning, like the language and you know that society and how society worked. But they're not exactly like the most interesting things in the world. There's a lot of interesting stuff, but again, there's also a lot of stuff that's just basic. So the writing system and the way that they would use it is basically how we would use it today. Um, and with that, like the idea of you know, them inventing writing them, you know, doing all this sort of stuff kind of makes like Mesopotamia, Sumeria, like the place to be. It's kind of like 1900s Paris, but for the, you know, 3500 BC, it's, it's the spot they're inventing, you know all sorts of stuff. They've got the wheel, you know, they're building cities. They're, they're basically like starting everything. This is the spot to be, you know, you've got big cities like rook, where you've got all these people, you know, they've just invented writing. They're laying down things and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's basically the spot to be. Now the language that the Sumerians spoke that they've turned into writing is what's called a language isolate. So if you're a language nerd like me, you'll know all about this. But if you're not, I'll try and put it simply. So, it's like if you speak Italian, you speak what's called a romance language and that's your f- your your language family. So, it doesn't have anything to do with being romantic. Italians don't speak more romantically than anyone else. It's just the name basically. But... So, Italians speak a romance language and the romance languages that are still alive today are Italian, Spanish, French, Romanian, um, probably forget Portuguese. They're the five big ones. And then there's like little ones and other things like that, but they're the five big ones today. And they are considered a family because they're kind of interconnected in a lot of their grammar and often a lot of their words. So, if you speak Italian, you can understand a a Spanish speaker, kind of, in a sense, like the words are often quite similar and the grammar is very similar and that sort of thing. So, like the difference between Italian and Spanish is quite minimal, actually. Um, It's probably uh, like you can't just straight off the bat just be like, right, I speak Spanish, now I speak Italian, because that's not the case. But I feel like If an Italian person and a Spanish person were in a room, they couldn't speak to each other in the opposite person's language, but they had to do something, I reckon they could get it done. Like, they're that close. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in the family is like that because French is nothing like Italian in the sense that the pronunciation is completely different. Like, in French, you don't speak- you don't pronounce the last letter of- most words if it's a consonant. Where in Italian, you pronounce every word, including double letters. So, if you have a double letter word, there's a special way that you pronounce it so that you hit both of the double letters. So, like that's they're very different and you couldn't have like a text that was in French and a text that's in Italian and you probably couldn't read hardly any of it. But they're similar in the sense that they come from the same root, which is Latin, and then they're also grammatically very similar. Now, when I was living in Ecuador, I learned Spanish well enough to get by, and I didn't read a single textbook or a, use d- learn any Spanish grammar because I used just basically used French grammar, and they matched so closely that I could get away with doing that and I could, you know, learn Spanish in 2 months to get by while I was living in South America. And that's because they are a family. So they have common roots and you can take certain things from one language and use it into another so it becomes easier to learn the the other languages because they have these similarities in the way they speak and where you put certain things and sentence structure and all this type of stuff and so the similarities between a, a language family are kind of like a spectrum so you can go from like let's say of romance languages italian would be at one end romanian would be at the other end and then, you know, Spanish is closer to Italian and then Portuguese is closer to Spanish and then French and then Romanian. So, that's kind of like a spectrum. But sometimes what happens is that Sumer- like just like Sumerian, there is no other languages that relate to this language. It's very, very uncommon nowadays because of the records of history and we can see the extinct languages that related to this language. And, you know, we know that they're not isolates in a sense, like they're isolated today, but back in the day they weren't. Where Sumerian, we don't know if there was another language that was like Sumerian because they didn't invent writing. You know, the Sumerians invented writing. So, the Sumerians have this language isolate. So, they're they're isolated. They invent this religion they invent writing the wheel like they're absolutely killing it they're the big top dogs in the world at that point point. and now they're in an area the mesopotamia would be iraq uh, to an extent iran it's hard to say because it's mainly iraq it's like the tigris and the euphrates i think there's four rivers in iraq but the Tigris and the Euphrates are the two big ones, and then I think a rook is really close to the Euphrates, I think. And then there's uh, there's definitely like an in between bit, and it's yeah, it's really interesting because they run parallel kind of to each other. And then I know Babylon was right in between where the Euphrates and the Tigris kind of met into like a delta type thing. So or well, they were really close. I don't know if they actually touch. I don't think they do touch, but they were really close where Babylon was. I know that. And so, it's kind of like this area of Iraq. Uh, and to an extent, you know, Pakistan, Iran, you know, that area. It's kind of that area. And it looked very different at the time. It wasn't like all desert and stuff. But anyway, so, they're kind of the big dogs in this area. They're running the show. Everything's kind of going well. They've been there for quite a long time beforehand. And then... Around 3,500, 3,000 BC, in come the Akkadians. Um, They're a Semitic-speaking people. So that means that they speak a language that was similar to, say, uh, Hebrew, modern Hebrew. Um, What else is a Semitic language? Arabic is a Semitic language. Um, Anything else? Uh, There's probably a ton I can't think of at the top of my head, but yeah. So they speak a language that would be similar to say Hebrew or Arabic. Um, And they come in around 3,500 to 3,000 BCE, but when they get there, like the Sumerians are absolutely killing it. So they kind of become like second-class citizens in a sense, kind of the Sumerians have everything over them, but you know, they kind of still live there and they kind of can do stuff, but they kind of can't. And I think it's interesting because I'm not sure why you would move there if you're going to become a second-class citizen. So, it it must have been good in Mesopotamia if you're going to have these people move in and they're going to be subjugated by you willingly, basically, because from- What I understand from what I've read is they just kind of moved in. It's like, it'd be like, let's say we have a neighborhood of all one people and then just another people just kind of move in. They're like, hey, we'll be your like cleaners and, you know, all this sort of stuff because this is a far better place to be than where we're from. So we'll come in and, you know, sort it all out. So they must have been killing it. Like the Sumerians must have really been killing it to have a whole people kind of move in and just be like, hey, you know we'll just chill out here, you know, we'll do your dirty work and, you know, everything's all good. But obviously it drains on you and you want your rights and, you know, nothing's going that well when you're subjugated. So they basically live like this maybe for about a thousand years. So, like, they think that they arrived around 3,500 to 3,000 BCE and then they're kind of subjugated until 2,335 BCE. And at this point, Sargon of Akkad, and Akkad is like one of the big Akkadian cities. Um, He kind of unites the whole of Mesopotamia. Um, Like, I I guess I should like caveat this, that they're not like living with the Sumerians and and being like their slaves in a sense, but they have their cities and, you know, they probably intermingled and that, but they were kind of second class cities, second class people. So, they didn't actually just go there to be slaves. They, they, yeah, they were living, but they didn't have the same rights. They weren't like these upper class. Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess that's kind of how it was. Like they moved in, they had their own neighborhoods, but they weren't like, you know, the people running the show, I guess. Um, In any case, you got, you get the picture. So after that, Saigon of Akkad has come through. He's united the whole of Mesopotamia. Everyone's. You know, happy and killing it and all this sort of stuff. They have they have a few hundred years of prosperity, as as everyone does, and then you know everything goes to goes to the dogs and the economy basically falls apart. And then there's a revival, and that doesn't last, and you know everything falls apart again. There's a few more, and then the whole empire basically just s- splits up. And so at, during the split. The Sumerians aren't really doing that well, so they get absorbed into Akkadian, and then basically Sumerian is no longer a thing, Um, because the Akkadians had the rule, like Sargon was an Akkadian. Um, Akkadian, you know, was more, more used, more often used, and then Sumerian kind of became this old thing, and then, you know, once... Once the, the, the empire splits and everyone's kind of choosing sides, everyone kind of becomes Akkadian and then Sumerian doesn't exist. And then so the language just kind of dies and yeah, it's basically no one uses it. No one speaks it, no one writes in it. It basically just becomes a dead language. So at this point, the empire splits and Assyria becomes a thing. Babylon becomes a thing. There's a ton of other nations um that just become things and they're all speaking in Akkadian. Um so they're all kind of related. I guess it'd be like uh, what well, how could I modern day. Okay, we'll go with we'll go with Arabic. I guess it would probably be very similar to Arabic. So Arabic is spoken from Morocco all the way to say I guess Yemen. Oman would be the the furthest out on the, uh, on the Gulf. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Omani, I think. And then it would go as far north as Syria. And then how far would it go out west? What would be the last one? Because Iran and Iraq, they speak Farsi, which is Persian. So, mm, yeah, it would probably be... Yeah, they're probably the last one. Maybe the last one would be Syria out west. No, probably Jordan. I'd say Jordan would be probably the furthest west that they speak Arabic. So anyway, just got a sidetrack there. But that they all speak the same language, so they're all related. They all intermingle. They all have, you know, contact with each other. They're very. I don't know if friendly is the word, but like they're very close to each other, but they all have their own independent nation states and they all do their own thing and they have different laws, they have different rules. They have, in a sense, they don't actually speak the same language uh, per se, because, you know, if you're from Morocco, that's called uh, Maghreb. So, like they speak like a Maghrebi dialect and then- you know, if you're in a Syrian and Lebanese, you speak like a Levantine dialect and then you have like a, a Gulf dialect, which would be Saudi Arabia, Omani, United Arab Emirates. So, like they don't speak like the same language exactly, but they all speak Ara- like it's called Arabic. And then, yeah, so it's kind of like how uh, the old Sumerian Empire kind of ends up because- it kind of gets split and then they create their own nations and they all speak Akkadian and they're all related, but then they, sometimes they fight each other and yeah, that's kind of how it goes. So anyway, at this point they have this, this system, they've got these own nation states and then they just kind of take turns in conquering each other for a few thousand years. So they, like, let's say Assyria becomes the big dog, um, which again i like most of my knowledge of of uh, assyria is from the bible so assyria was like the big dog when the bible was kind of cr- written i guess or created no depends when you think the bible was written i guess but it's kind of the first civilization in the bible that kind of starts stuff with israel and then it comes be- becomes babylon so like babylon kind of conquers assyria and then they become the big dog and it's kind of how it works throughout that whole period is just them chopping and changing and one nation takes over the other nation takes over. And then they just, you know, they just kind of do that for a few thousand years. Um, so anyway, at this point, uh, Aramaic somehow becomes like the Linga Franca of everyone. So kind of everyone's speaking Aramaic in the way that everyone speaks English today. So like everyone still had their own languages, like, Uh, you know, the Hebrews would have spoken Hebrew and Aramaic and like the, uh, like to start with the Akkadians would have spoken Akkadian and Aramaic. Um, So, you know, everyone's speaking Aramaic to communicate with each other. This is how um, the Assyrians would have spoken with the Hebrews and that sort of thing. But at some point, Akkadian dies because everyone's speaking Aramaic all the time. Aramaic be- kind of becomes the language that everyone speaks. And then, you know, eventually Acadian stopped being used as like a, a language. I don't know if there's a modern example of that. Um, I guess maybe like in South America where Spanish people, Spanish speakers came over and then you have the local dialects like Quechua and, uh, what's the other one that they, they have over there. Oh, uh, I can't remember. I was just there. Anyway, the um, yeah, they have their local languages, but then you know, more often than not, more people are learning Spanish because only Spanish is spoken in the cities, and there's more jobs in the cities, so people move to the cities, and then they have kids, and then they, they don't teach the kids Quechua; they teach the kids Spanish. So then the kid doesn't speak Quechua, and then you know he's not a native speaker, so that it keeps going and going, and then eventually you know no one speaks these native languages anymore, and that's how a language dies through uh, assimilation. And so, with South America, they were conquered. So, it's kind of forced upon them. So, it's not exactly natural. But with this uh, this example, Aramaic was like a natural progression. Everyone was just speaking Aramaic. That's how everyone communicated with everyone. I assume these cities like Assyria and Babylon were very- uh, How do I put that? They were very international, I guess, in the sense that probably people passed through a lot. There was people from everywhere kind of coming in. And then, yeah, basically, Arcadian dies. The last Arcadian text is from 73 CE. So, yeah, and that's kind of the end of the language at that point. Uh, It's not the end of the religion, but it's the end of the language at at that point. Um, So, this actually, I probably got a bit ahead of myself here because the last of the Empire falls in 539 BCE, which is a very, uh, which is a very... I guess famous but that's for me I guess um but um it's it's when Cyrus comes to Babylon and uh which was 537 so that was two years later but he comes through and he just starts like crushing the uh Syrian, Arcadian, Mesopotamian, Babylonian empire and he just kind of goes through and just kind of Defeats everyone basically. It's a it's an absolute landslide. So he comes through and he destroys everyone basically. But Cyrus had this weird, very very interesting and very unique perspective on things. And what he would do is he would say, come into a city. He would conquer the people, and then he would say, just keep doing whatever you're doing. As long as you're supporting me and letting me do my thing and you're paying your taxes, you can just keep on doing whatever you're doing. So he doesn't interfere with the religions or the culture and he doesn't want them to speak Persian. He doesn't care, basically. He's just like, as long as you're doing your thing, keep doing it. Everything's fine. Just, you know, be my subject, all that stuff is kind of good. So, he comes through, he basically destroys the empire, but the religion and the culture continue because Cyrus doesn't ban it, basically, which is what happens in most places. Like, you know, the French would come in to say, you know, Morocco and Egypt and they were like, you know what, (laughs) Um, forget about this language, you got to speak French now. And like they did that in South America, no, Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, New Caledonia, and Futuna, French Polynesia, all these places, they come in, you've got to speak French now, you can't speak English uh, or the native language. And then, yeah, that's not what Cyrus was about. He'd come in and say, just keep doing what you're doing. Everything's all good. But, you know, just remember who the boss is. So he does that. Everything's fine. The culture, the religion continue. And then Alexander comes and he conquers Persia and he brings Greek Hellenistic influences and, um, you know, he everything kind of starts to decline at that point. There is there is like a semblance of religious growth during the Parthian Empire um, in Assyria where like temples were built again and um, they were dedicated to gods that, you know, you would recognize as Sumerian gods, as Shuishta, stuff like that. But that's kind of like a last ditch effort that doesn't really do much in a sense because, uh, you know, Christianity comes and Christianity is like a flood basically. And it kind of, it just kind of like was wiping out, you know, religions and cultures and people as it kind of went. And then by about 400 AD, everything was kind of over. Um, no one was really practicing the religion that was kind of dead. Um, and all everyone that kind of practiced it was converted to uh, Syriac Christianity. And basically, that's it. Now, I thought before I did it, like a lot of the research about this, that it would be dead. Like I'd go through and be like, okay, this is with these gods, this, this, and that. This is a dead thing. No one believes this stuff anymore. But as I've gone through it and I've like looked at what they believed and like the myths that they had... There are still people that believe this stuff. Like I've actually met people that you would consider to be a form of this type of religion. So the religion itself isn't 100% dead. You couldn't say that this is a dead religion because there are still people today, however small, there are still people today that believe this type of stuff. The mythology, the way that the world was created, the way that the world is going to finish. And... I'm not sure the main influence for this continuation. Like there's a lot of Zachariah Hitch, Sitchin people, um, which, you know, they're pretty crazy. Um, but the, even those that don't... that Like there's a lot of people that don't recognize him as being like legit, but they still believe this type of story, at least to some extent. So I, I don't think I would say that this religion is finished, but it's not very popular, I would say that. So, it's definitely an old religion. I don't think people are writing it down on their census that they're a Syrian religion. We don't even know what they would have called this. So, I don't think people are writing that down on their religious census, but there is still people that believe this type of thing. So, it's not completely dead. But it's mostly dead. And after about 400, there's no continuation of the religion. Like, there's not new things being created. Like, there's no society pushing this to change or continue. And I don't think there's been a, a temple to assure in, like, you know, since, since the uh, Parthian Empire. So, you know, that's well before 400 AD. So, what's that? two About 2,000 years ago. So, yeah, it's not dead but it's very much dying. So who knows what happens? You know, things come back, things become popular, stuff goes through phase, phases, but yeah, at that, for for our purposes, we'll say that 400 AD was kind of the last of the big, you know, Mesopotamian religious, uh, uh, fervorance and following. So after all that rambling, I feel like you've probably got a basic outline of what, uh, Mesopotamian life would have been like, and the uh, history of the place. So now we'll get into the actual religion itself and what it was all about. So, as similar to most religions, um, the the religions of Mesopotamia started off as like a, a nature worship type thing, which is pretty standard <clears throat> because. If you don't already know about religions and gods and things like that, you kind of worship the things that you see. And you know, you got the wind, you got fire, you got the crops, rain, floods, hurricanes, and that kind of becomes your life. You're you're at the mercy of these elements. And so a lot of a lot of religions, especially like the ones that come out of places that don't have religion before or are kind of isolated, create like this nature worship type thing in which the forces that control their lives become gods and that's kind of what happened in mesopotamia um it starts out as a worship of you know plants and animals and trees and rain and all that sort of stuff and then it kind of changes into a more polytheistic deity type religion where there is a god who replaces the wind and a God who replaces uh, the trees, and there's a God who replaces the floods, and every every kind of, like, part of nature kind of gets replaced by a God. And so, instead of praying directly to the wind, you have a wind God, and you play, pray to the wind God, and the wind God is going to, you know, be like, hey, we're, we're not going to have a huge wind that's going to tear out all your crops. And that's kind of what happens. They, they kind of become like... Uh, like a placeholder for for the elements in a sense and it kind of gives it a much more humanistic feel so like if you're just praying to the wind the wind is not a person it doesn't have feelings and things it's like it, it's inanimate so giving giving the people this like god type thing allows them to think that maybe there's mercy or justice or something like that so it becomes it becomes a lot easier to believe that doing doing things for this god will change the outcome of your life in a sense because you create like this humanistic type thing with the religion. And the Mesopotamians definitely believed that their gods were humanistic. They they were they were represented as humans. Like a lot of the pictures and the drawings and the carvings they all look exactly like humans. So that's quite interesting and it's co- it's kind of interesting how humanistic they thought they were because in like the regal hierarchy, the king wasn't actually the king. So, the king was always a god and like I'm going to assume that it was the god of the city was, was their like main guy, but it's hard to say because originally they didn't rank the gods, but then later they did rank the gods. So, it's hard to say, but from what I've read most, like from the start, like the Sumerians always considered Ashur to be like the king, as in like the way that we would consider a king to be a king. The king was always Ashur because king, like Ashur definitely existed and he was humanistic. So, he was always the king. And then the man king, like the ki- what we would consider to be the king, like I don't know who's got a king anymore. Um, I don't know, like Queen, let's say Queen Elizabeth, like what we, we would think of if she had a husband who was a king, he would be considered in Sumerian culture to be the high priest. So he was kind of working for the king in a sense. So he kind of was like a conduit to Assur. So Asuk run the show, he was king, and then the, the physical representation or, or the physical uh, presence on earth was the king, which I think in Sumerian, the word for king is actually high priest. And they, um, yeah, and they were kind of like a messenger in a sense. They didn't have like ultimate power in like early Sumerian culture. They were more like just just keeping Assur's will going in a sense. They were kind of like a caretaker or a placeholder and they just kind of kept things going in a sense. So that's kind of how early Sumerian religion kind of worked because the gods were considered so human that they were like the main god, Ashur, was deemed the king of society. So they weren't just considered like lofty gods that, you know, we couldn't really relate to. They were, they were like humanistic in a sense. So it's, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. But as with all things, you know, all human things, corruption comes about. And, uh, in Assyria and Babylon, the, uh, the king got like the king on earth, the, the high priest got promoted to Assyria's chosen. So they weren't the, they weren't God, they weren't like the main king guy. But they definitely knew what Assure wanted and they declared it and they could change things and they basically acted like a God. So, it was it was kind of hard when, when a person becomes a God's chosen to say that they're wrong because they're God's chosen. So, basically, if you're saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong and selfish and you're doing it for your own self-interest, you're basically challenging the God as well as the person who is god's chosen. And that's why it's always been hard in history to change anything when religion is such is so fervently practiced because you're going against god and no one wants to go against god like god is is when you it's hard it's hard to explain to like our culture because we don't live in these these fervent religious cultures. But like when God is everything in your life, it's so hard to like go against that, even if you know you're getting screwed over because, you know, it's so ingrained in you that this is God's chosen person. And even if he is corrupt, this is God's will. So it's, yeah, it's kind of hard. And that's kind of what happened to Mesopotamian culture once the Sumerians were gone. And the Akkadian kind of fell and it became, you know, Assyria and Babylon and all these nation states. They kind of upgraded themselves to a, a Assyria's Chosen and then they could kind of do whatever they want. And you couldn't really say anything because they were God's chosen. So, they could wage war on anyone, do anything they kind of wanted. They were basically gods on earth and you couldn't really do anything because you don't want to go against God. Because, you know, when you start going against gods, bad stuff happens. So... Yeah, which is, you know, it it happens in all societies. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So, yeah, pretty rough, but that's kind of how it goes. Now, um, the gods that were in Mesopotamia, um, there was many of them, thousands. um, And I I think a guy went through and went through all, like, the texts, like Sumerian, Akkadian, all the mesopotamian texts and he counted 2400 gods so the, there's a lot to choose from they all have a purpose they all have a a quality about them like there's moon gods sun gods as i mentioned all sorts of stuff like that but the religion itself wasn't polytheistic in the sense that they worshipped all 2400 gods there could be more these are the ones that are mentioned in the text but like they didn't worship all of them in the way that like a Hindu would worship all the gods in the Hindu religion. It was henotheistic, which means that everyone was kind of assigned a god or you somehow came about a god. Um, And oftentimes it was the city to which you lived in. So let's say you were from Eridu, your god was Anki. So oftentimes you would worship only Enki, but you knew that in Babylon they worshipped Marduk. And Marduk existed and he was a god, but you didn't worship worship him because your god was Enki. It was kinda of like it was kind of like sports, like if you had a footy team and then you you know there's other football teams. And the football teams play each other, but you don't follow the other football team. You follow your football team. And it's the same thing with gods in Mesopotamia. You had your god. He was your god. You worshipped him. You followed him. You made sacrifice to him. Everything you did was about him. But you also knew that other cities had other gods. And they existed. And, you know, if you went to battle, it was kind of like the sporting match. You're playing footy against each other. You know, tons of people die. Kind of not footy. But if... You know, that was kind of the thing. And then whoever won was like, well, you know, I've been worshipping Enki a lot better than you've been worshipping Marduk, so that's why we won, you lost, suck it. And that's kind of how a henotheistic religion is set up. It's kind of a group of people and there's a ton of gods and each section of, of the group worships their own god but they do believe that the other gods exist and they have powers and all that sort of stuff but they do not worship them because they got their own god so it's kind of it's kind of like a, it's kind of like the football team analogy which is uh which is pretty interesting um and i no one could really say how much reverence they had for the other gods like I never read anything that was like they respected the other gods or you know they, they had any type of, you know, interest in the other gods. So I can't really say whether or not the other gods played any part in anyone's life, whether, you know, because like in, in our society, well, I don't know where you're listening from, depending on your society um, and depending on your religion, you may only know about your religion. Like when, when the, like I worked with a few guys that were Burmese or uh, Hindu or, um, Buddhists, like people like that from like India, Burma, like, you know, that sort of thing. And they didn't really know anything about Christianity. They didn't know about Jesus. Like, you know, they just didn't know the things that you would take for granted being from a Western society. And I couldn't really find any indication whether or not Mesopotamian society society was like that in the sense that they wouldn't know about Marduk or they wouldn't know about Enki or depending on where you were, you may know about this God, but you don't know about this God. Like I couldn't, I couldn't find really any information about that. And I it may be lost forever, but, um, yeah. So that's kind of how the religion was set up. You kind of had your own God and you, you know, went after it, but you knew about other gods and you're like, yeah, you, know, you know, like, They're there, but they're not my gods, so I don't really care. Now, all these gods were anthropomorphic, which means that they had human qualities. They acted like humans. They needed food. They needed to drink. If they got a little bit pissy on the wine, they'd get drunk. Um, So, they were very much like Greek gods in the sense that they still had human qualities. They were they were doing things that humans would do. They were created, well, I guess because they were created by men, they had the qualities that men saw in themselves. But they were they were more perfect than human, though. They were more powerful. They would they were all seeing. They were immortal. They still had our human qualities, and if you gave them too much wine, they'd get drunk and all that sort of stuff. But they were a more perfect version of us, or maybe like a. Maybe like a goal in a sense. Like, I guess if you're creating a god, you have to look around at yourself and be like, well, what would I want to be? And maybe that's how it came about. But, the yeah, the gods were all anthropomorphic. They all acted like humans. They had human traits. They looked like humans. They needed to eat. They needed to drink. They were basically just better versions of humans, kind of like that Prometheus movie where, you know, beta human or, or alpha human or whatever kind of like rocks up and you're so well wow, you know he's just this jack dude who's like you know doing all this technological stuff and that's probably how they saw their gods as being like these advanced people that um you know all-seeing immortal and they had like a a brightness around them kind of i guess it's probably where the idea of a halo or like a you know when you see an angel there's like a glow or whatever this is probably where this comes from it's they had like a brightness around them but it didn't like kill them in the bible it says if you see god you're dead but this brightness was kind of to give them an awe and create like a revenance for them and just be like wow these are the gods look they're bright this is you know this is dope I've seen a god. He's got brightness around him, so that's kind of kind of the traits: immortal, all-seeing, got a brightness around him. You know, they're basically just 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 better humans than than what the people were at that time. Um, and all the gods were related to each other, which is fairly standard for a, a polytheistic religion. You know, Greeks—they're all related to each other. I believe all the Hindu gods are kind of intermingled. So, like, yeah, pretty pretty standard type of thing now the way that the gods were kind of treated is they weren't they weren't like mystical deities like like when you think about Jesus and Jesus coming back you think of like this mystical person who's gonna you know save the world and like you know he's to be revered and this is the person that you want to be like because he's such a good bloke and you know You're serving him because of the benefits you're going to get from serving him. You know, he comes back, it depends on what part of Christianity you're in, but, you know, he'll take you to heaven, you'll go to paradise, whatever your outcome is, there's always like a dope outcome for serving this guy. In Mesopotamia, it wasn't really like that. They were, the gods were more seen as overlords, to be served like kind of like a master slave type situation. So there wasn't like a, oh, I'm doing this for this God because he's a dope dude and he's gonna really sort me out. It's more like, hey, there's these gods and if I don't serve them, they're gonna punish me. So I better keep them happy. And that's kind of how the whole, the whole layer of the land was in Mesopotamia. It was all about not having the wrath of the gods you know, fall upon you. They were more, they were more overlords. And the, it's, it's kind of hard to explain how, like the, the way that they thought about the gods, because the gods weren't thought about as gods in the way that we think about gods. Cause like, even if you fervently believe like, you know, Yahweh exists or Jesus exists or, you know, something like that, they're always these unattainable people that you can never get to. Like, like in in Christianity, you have to die before you go to heaven, or die before you go to paradise. And if you're like a paradise person, you never actually go to God. Like God is so unattainable for you; he is not real in your life, basically. But in Mesopotamia, these people they they believe that these gods were as real as the as the window I'm sitting next to, or the bed that I'm sitting on. Like these were real to these people, and they were attainable. Like As we go through, I'll tell you more about the way that they were worshipped and how everything kind of went, but you could go and see them in a sense. So these, they were like real people and they had real people qualities. And in that time there was master and slaves. It was the overlords and the servants. And that's how the gods were thought of. They were the overlords and you had to serve them or your life was gonna suck. And that's kind of how everything was set up. Kind of how society was at that time. So I guess if you look, if you look at the at, at the way that the society was, the gods kind of match the society, and vice versa. So you can take a look at any aspect of of Sumerian culture, Mesopotamian culture, and you can kind of see you can kind of see how the gods match the culture, and the culture match the gods. And they're so intertwined, and it's kind of interesting. But, but it's also interesting because there was a certain level of like respect for the overlords in a sense, because they used to name their kids after the gods and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting the way that they were, they were treated. Um, and the gods weren't, weren't like ranked as like, you know, this is the best God. This is the, the worst God originally when, when it all started, they were like, they're all gods. They're all basically the same importance. You know, everything's all good. But then later, you know, everyone loves ranking things, you know, I think, I think there's like 5 trillion websites that rank, you know, I don't know, best movies, best shoes, the best person on the red carpet, all that sort of crap. Like we're just inherently as people trying to rank things all the time. And that's basically what they did. And they, and, I believe there's like a text that kind of shows the rankings and it kind of gives you like a top five, a top six type of, type of thing. And the way that they ended up being ranked eventually was like, Enlil was number one. He was top dude, king of the gods. And then next comes An, and uh, he was called Anu by the Akkadians. And he was kind of like Enlil, but he wasn't like the top god. He was like, you know, kind of a... He, yeah, he wasn't the top dude, but he was, he was up there. And then Anki was another top god. Uh, he was called Ea by the Akkadians. And again, he's like, just, he's not Enlil, but you know, he's like a little bit below. He's probably like, it's probably like the CEO, CFO. And you know, that, it's kind of like a, a business hierarchy where you got power, but you're not really kill, killing it. And then, you know, you've got the, the moon god, Nana, and the sun god, Etu. And they're also kind of top guys up there so that's like the top five and then you've got like the fun god the goddess of uh, sex and war in anna and she was also like a top top tier god so that's kind of like the top six the gods that everyone was like right they're kind of like the top dudes you know everything's kind of set in stone in that sense these are the ones that are the most worshipped, the most popular the most people probably knew about them I would. the way I'm assuming that people knew about the gods it was like everyone had their own city god and then there was probably some like personal gods that they had that people knew about and then everyone kind of knew about the top six you know what I mean like yeah these are these are the big daddies these are the ones that everyone kind of knew about and I would assume everyone probably respected and maybe even worshipped but again you can't really say this is all this stuff is from you know 3,500 BC and is written on clay tablets. So it's pretty hard to uh, get any decent information about it. But anywho, they were the top six and they kind of went on for, you know, most of the time, once they decided that these were the top six, they kind of went along for the whole thing until like the rise of Babylon in which Marduk became like the top dog. He kind of took over Enlil's spot because, you know... For Babylon's Babylon city, God was Marduk, and so when Babylon took over, they're like, "Well, you know, Marduk's our city, and look how all the stuff we've done, and we're pretty cool." So they kind of elevated Marduk to like the top dog position. But before that, it was the the six that I mentioned before, and it and it kind of yeah only changed that one time when Babylon kind of took over, and it's it's interesting because the Babylonian religions are kind of basically the same as the Assyrian religions, like they kind of existed at the same time and they're basically the same. They're a continuation of, of the Sumerian religion and, uh, they, they're basically the same thing. And the only real difference is that Babylon was Marduk and Assyria was, uh, Ashur and they kind of fought each other over it and hated each other, you know, standard, standard people stuff but they're basically the same thing so it, it, for, when you're looking from outside in you probably wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between the two religions but from the inside out you'll probably thought they were like chalk and cheese completely different so it's yeah it's it's that's that's kind of how a lot of religions races different things like that where people will be like Oh, you know, these people are pretty similar. But then when you're actually in the culture, it's like, Oh, those people are completely different. It's like, I guess you were relating it to myself. It'd be like Australians and New Zealanders. People would be like, Oh, you know, they're pretty similar people. And from the outside, we kind of are like, we have very similar like temperaments and culture. And we're, we're pretty similar people. But then when you're inside, like if you're an Australian, a New Zealander is completely different. I mean, if you're a New Zealander, an Australian's completely different, we have different accents, we have everything's kind of completely different. So it's yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of like that in in the same in this religious situation. It's kind of the same in every every region culture. Anything that anyone tries to compare, people are probably gonna be like, well, that's probably, you know, not accurate, but you know, they're kind of similar. So for our purposes, we're going to say that Assyria and Babylon, basically the same thing. Babylon's got Marduk and Assyria has a and that's how we're going to leave it. So from here, we'll get into where the gods were worshiped and how they were worshiped and treated. <clears throat> so, as I mentioned earlier, each city has its own God, its own deity, but all of the major deities were patrons of the city. Um, But there was always the one main dude so it's probably likely that each city had its own dude and they worshipped that pretty fervently and you know he had his own temple and all that sort of stuff but all the big boys the top six that I mentioned before there's probably some other ones um, they were all kind of represented in the city and they probably had their own thing not sure whether there would have been temples in all cities, but probably shrines and stuff like that. I guess it would depend on the city and the people and how they respected the other gods. And again, a lot of this stuff is really not known because it's so long ago. But from what we understand, every city had its own god, but then also other, other gods, main gods were kind of represented. Like a city wouldn't have had, you know, some type of, temple shrine ornament to all 2500 gods or whatever it was but you know they'd probably be like you know the main temple for the main god and then maybe like you know three or four for the other god um babylon though had as many as 50 temples in the 7th century so you know they were super fervent i, I would assume that a lot of them would have been to marduk because they were pretty keen on him they uh they thought he was pretty good stuff but um yeah so like I guess the, uh, the pinnacle of, uh, religious fervor in Mesopotamia would have been 7th century Babylon with its 50 temples, but I would assume most cities weren't like that. Um, now each city's temple was what was called a ziggurat. Um, if you listen to my Tower of Babel episode, uh, you'll already know what a ziggurat is, but, uh, in a sense, a ziggurat is like a step pyramid. And it had uh, had many levels, um, you know, four or five, I think was was pretty standard, I believe. Um, but they were kind of set up like four or five or however many levels it was of just, you know, big steps, like the size of a, a story. So, it was like maybe like five stories and it kind of tapered in as it went up. So, you'd have the first story come up, then like a flat roof, and then, you know, the second story would come up you know, however far the, uh, the inside went and then it'd go further. And then the third one would go up and it kind of, it kind of looked like a s- basically big steps. Like each step was a story. And then you would have a stairwell and sometimes it was on each side. Sometimes it was only one again, depending on the temple, but those steps were human size steps. So you'd If you're going to go up to, say, the top level, the fifth level, you could walk up human-sized steps to get up to the top. But it was basically like a step pyramid. Um, So, the pyramids or the temples always had, like, an open courtyard. They always had fountains for ablutions. They had altars for sacrifices. And they always kind of had this holy grove, which had, like, a holy tree in it. Um, and apparently the king was like this master gardener who like tended to this holy tree. And I honestly didn't read up much on it, but now that I'm reading it, I think I probably should have because it sounds so wacky that the king kind of has like this green thumb and he makes, tends to this holy grove with this holy tree and it kind of sounds pretty wacky. I wish I had done more research on that, but, uh, didn't, maybe I'll do that later and, uh, somehow weave it into another episode um, but the uh, the idea of this temple being a step pyramid, many scholars have like thought of ideas of why it was stepped um, and some people believe that it was stepped so that the gods could come from heaven and, you know, step down onto earth. Um, other people believe that it was uh, just like a huge altar in a sense, like it was stepped like that so that. It kind of would represent like the top tier of the altar, and they would do like all sorts of culty stuff at the top and, like, you know, get down and diggy with it. But, um, yeah, again, that's just another thought. Other people still uh, uh, believe that the temple represents some sort of like cosmic mountain, and, uh, you know, that sort of thing, like, actually, like a representation of like a, a natural structure was. So, you could kind of like a man-made hill or a cosmic, yeah, cosmic mountain or something like that. I don't know. Basically, they don't know. There's a lot of ideas about why they were like that. But honestly, it's probably just a really good structure to make out of mud bricks. From the research I did on the uh, Tower of Babel episode, when you taper out a building like that and you have it, um, you know, go outwards. And then, you know, the next level is kind of set in more and then set in more like a step. You can go, like, it's kind of like insanely strong and you can go up super high and you don't have to worry about it falling down or breaking. So, probably it's just a really good construction method for mud brick and there's no real symbolism to it at all. But, you know, people like to dream. Um, And, yeah, that's kind of what people have kind of come up with. Um, Now, so temples were only in major cities. So you wouldn't have a temple in an outer city. You would just have, say, a shrine. And the shrine would be to your town god, of course. Um, But it wasn't the home of the god. And things we'll get into a bit later. But it was just basically a shrine to say, hey, this is our god. We're worshipping him. You know, just kind of going through the motions in a sense. So I guess the idea would be like... You know, in modern times, you'd say Sydney would have a temple, Melbourne would have a temple, Brisbane would have a temple. Newcastle would have a temple, I guess, if you're going on East Coast cities. And then, you know, other cities in between would be like, uh, they would have shrines. But, you, you know, if you wanted to go to the temple, you'd have to go to like Sydney or Newcastle or Melbourne or Brisbane to get like, you know, to get your real worship on. You'd have to head to one of the cities. But everyone kind of had a little shrine. They'd get after it and, you know worship, do their, do their former worship, but they couldn't really, yeah, worship at a temple unless they had, they had to travel. Now the temples themselves were seen as God's house on earth and the statues and idols that were inside were, were seen as, as actually having the deity inside of them. So the temple wasn't just a place where people would go to worship these gods that didn't exist and were out of their reach but they were trying their hardest to kind of get there they would actually be going to God's house and God would be there and you could see God because God was inside this statue that someone had made and you would actually worship the statue as if you were worshiping the God itself so it's again it's quite different to the way that we would see it today because if you go to a church today you're kind of praying and worshipping something that is unattainable like you could never get to god or see god but you do this worship so that he knows that you're after him but you can't ever get there because you know he's so far out of reach but like these mesopotamians thought that the gods actually lived inside the temples it was their home on earth and they thought that so much that they would give the idols food and drink Because they needed it. Because they were human. Because they were in these statues on earth. And they would wash them. Bathe them. They had rooms to sleep in. They had rooms for their families to sleep in. They had stables with horses and all sorts of stuff. They had kitchens and servants. They'd get taken on trips. They'd go on hunts. They'd have entertainment done for them. They'd be dressed every day. They'd be served two banquets a day. Like The people considered that these these idols were the gods themselves. So there's stories of people going into say a city in Mesopotamia and taking the gods out of the temple and taking them back to their country. So the idea was that you were literally taking the God from their town and you were taking it back to your town. So you were literally taking the God as hostage, which was kind of like, you know, the biggest, you know, get that one up here that you could kind of do so that was kind of a really big thing because they actually believed that the gods were in the statues and if the statues got broken or smashed or stolen you know the god didn't have a place on earth he was you know he wasn't physically represented on earth so they took it all kind of very very seriously you know as I said they had all this stuff made for them they had servants they had so much stuff for them because everyone believed that they were living in this temple. Um, Now, an interesting thing that I came about while I was doing the research is they would lay out the banquets for these gods and then the god would eat the food and there was no food left once the banquet was finished. But no one could really say how they thought that this statue ate um, because what would happen is... Uh, they would serve the banquet, they would draw a curtain and then they would undraw the curtain and all the food was gone. So, yeah, they would kind of pull the Swifty there, the old David Blaine, uh, getting the food out somehow. But no one kind of, it wasn't common knowledge how the food was removed, whether someone ate it, wh- whatever happened, because the, uh, yeah, the curtain was was drawn so everyone thought oh you know the god likes a bit of privacy when he eats he's uh he's a big big loner a big eater alone and um so they assumed that the statue was eating the food because it was the god so they kind of had a good racket going on there um but sometimes the king would come down and hang out with the god and have have a feed sometimes the priest would have a feed with the god so it's not really known what what the deal was and how how legit people thought it was that the statues were eating all the food but you know the king would have a curtain drawn when he ate so it was kind of keeping up the ruse of like hey the god's a bit shy when he eats he doesn't uh doesn't like people seeing him eat so yeah I don't know from what when I was reading it I was like this kind of seems like pretty stupid how could you how could you not know that there was some like mischief going on a, a snafu when the uh, when the curtain gets drawn but yeah i don't know Every, everyone each to themselves there was also like a big thing when i was reading about burning incense in the temple because the gods loved a good smell they liked their temple to smell nice it was kind of like the the spot in the like it would have been it would have been the best place in the city. Like if you had some, you know, delegates from another city or you wanted to impress someone of, like for your city, you'd probably take them to the temple. Cause it sounds like the temple was like the dope place to be. It smelled good. There were servants. It was clean. You know, it, it was always looked after. They had the whole thing going on. It was kind of, it was kind of interesting. And it was again, like how intertwined it was with like the regal hierarchy the king kind of thought was thought of as the cult leader of of the thing, and so he was kind of put in charge. Depending again, depending on what era you are, he's either God's main servant or God's messenger, God's chosen. Depending on what time of time of the year it is, what you, what year in the world, um, it could, he could have had importance of any any level, but he was always sort of as the leader of the religion. And so he would have to go to the temple and actually do stuff in the temple. But again, you know, how things work, how Kings always work. He had some guys working for him and, you know, that's how he, how he kind of got everything done. Um, so there was like these watchmen that would oversee the priests. So I assume they were the snitches and they'd be like, oh, you know, priest A didn't do his job that well today. Sir King, you know, give us a few pennies and, uh, you know, be on your way. So they were probably the worst of the lot, the old, uh, the old snitches. Then they had like priests to purify demons and, and magic from individuals. They had priests to purify the temple. They had a few priests to play songs when the gods were mad. They had singers, craftsmen, sword bearers, masters of divination. They had many, many more. They had all, all sorts of stuff. And it was yeah, I don't know, it was it was kind of like a racket in a sense because people were getting paid to do like, I don't know, play songs and, you know, the God's mad, he wants a song, you know. Oh, the God needs his sword when he goes out, so he had a, someone carry the sword with it. It was kind of like a racket just to like, yeah, just just to like get people paid, I think, I'm not really sure, but like the whole way that it was worshipped was so... It kind of reminds me how you would expect like an Egyptian king to be served um, in the sense of like all the movies I've ever seen and all the books I've ever read about the whole situation. I kind of feel like the way that the Mesopotamians served their god and the way that the the system was set up to serve the god or keep the god happy is kind of like the way that Egyptian kings were looked after their servants. and. feasts and went out and you know had entertainment people sing for him and all sorts of stuff like that so it's it's kind of interesting at how legitimately they thought that this deity was their king and they had him as a statue and he was inside the statue and he had his house and he had a whole family there and it's it kind of it kind of blows my mind actually of how fervently they thought that he was actually living in this house and they thought he existed and they thought he was king and they could have access to this person even though it was in essence a stone or wooden statue so yeah it's 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 kind of interesting for me and it always it's always hard to think about and i kind of have to get it in my head all the time that they thought that the, the, the deity was that close to them that it was the king and he was there in the temple in the center of the city and it was so real to them. They had like this real active religion which we don't have. So, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting for me to think about it that way. As with everything in life, there's always a trickle-down effect, so you know, originally there was a well in the city and then you'd go and get water, you'd pull water out and then you'd take it back to your house. Now everyone has a tap in their house. Most people have multiple taps in their house. So everything goes from being in the city to being very individualistic. And that's the exact same with Mesopotamian gods. Um, So as mentioned countless times in this episode, every Mesopotamian city had its own god. But eventually every person had their own personal deity. Um, and this kind of started off as like a rich person thing. It was like, oh, you know, ooh, I has my rich person deity and he helps me out and everything's great. But then, you know, as every, as with everything in life, it kind of trickled down to the common man and eventually everyone kind of had a personal deity. Um, so this deity was worshipped daily and the person kind of had like a relationship with them. They were like, oh, you know, this is my personal deity. He's my bro. We're going to go give him some food and, you know, bow to him a little bit and he's going to help me out. Um, so every, every personal deity had its own statue and each day it was prayed to, um, you know, maintained, all that sort of stuff. Um, the idea with these personal deities wasn't necessarily that they were celebrated like people didn't necessarily like having their own personal deity they were more feared in a way it was like like the people had like an extreme reverence and devotion to these deities but it was because they feared what would happen if they didn't not really because they loved them so it's kind of it's a bit of a weird situation to be in fear of something inanimate but you know each to their own, I guess. Um, And kind of it became this thing where everything you kind of did was based on this personal deity. You know, if if you were doing good stuff, like things were going well in your life, you were healthy, everything like this, it was the deity that you were worshipping the deity well, and this is why good things were happening to you. If bad stuff was happening into your life, it was because you weren't worshipping the deity well enough and he was you know, not helping you out at all. And that's why bad stuff was happening. If you got sick, you know, you weren't worshipping your deity and you got sick. So you've messed up as, you you know, logical. If uh, you got a promotion at work, it was not you, it was the deity. Everything was passed on from the deity. You never did anything well. You were just worshipping your deity well and everything else was kind of the deity. So it took a lot of onus off people. So people would Go to work, you know, oh, you're gonna get more money. Oh, that was the deity, it wasn't you, you weren't good. But then also it goes the other way in which, oh, you know, things are going wrong. It's not your fault, it's the deity's fault, basically. So yeah, it's kind of kind of an interesting situation. Um and kind of like the kind of like the overbearing theme of the whole thing was like you don't worship your deity well, your life kind of goes to shit basically. And if you worship your deity well, he would help you out and your whole life would be dope. And it's kind of interesting because you could be worshiping your deity the same way as your next door neighbor, but he's going well and you're not. And because it's based on the deities, some reason your deity's angry at you and you don't know why and then you just keep trying to do things to make your deity happen happy. But you know, obviously your deity's doing nothing. I mean, it's like a piece of wood. So you know, it just gets in this cycle of why are things going wrong? And, you know, it's, it's, you're told it's the deity. So they keep putting, you know, trying to look after the deity more, be better to the deity. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how, how it would be back in the day. So the Mesopotamians uh, had a creation myth, but it's a lot more succinct than the uh, Christian myth. And also it's a little bit different. Um, so the story goes that Marduk kills the goddess Tiamat and then he takes her body and, like, tears it in half. And half of her body is used to make the earth. And then the other half is used to make both the Paradise Samu and the Netherworld Iri- I- 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 Um So, basically, there's a goddess. A god kills a goddess. Tears the body in half. One half is used to make the earth because, apparently, the earth needs more body. It, less, less... Less God, more body, and then the other side needs less body, more God, and so they make paradise, they make the netherworld, they make the earth, and uh, you know everything's hunky dory. Um, the gods hang out in Samu, which is the paradise, which is you know above everything, and yeah, basically that's the whole creation myth. It's pretty succinct. There's not not really too much to it. Um, it's interesting though that they thought that the Earth was a spheroid, so like you know, a, a type of sphere, which is basically a circle. So I guess if you're on that uh, on that flat Earth grind, if you're uh, if you're playing frisbee and not soccer, um, yeah, I think you're you're pretty behind the times at this point because the first civilization knew that the world was round. So there you go. So the Mesopotamians had a very strong belief in demons, um, even though they didn't have a word for it. Um, There was no word for demons collectively, but they were usually referred to by their individual names. Um, So they were they were basically thought that demons were the source of all the bad in the world. So, like private individuals as well as like priests and. You know, basically everyone would use incantations to ward off demons. They had little chants and spells and things they would lay out to, you know, try and protect themselves from these demons that they thought were going to be harmful. Um, There was tons of them, like countless numbers. There's so many demons. And sometimes they would attack gods. Um, Sometimes they were the spirits of the dead who would uh, cause mischief, like they were just super duper into demons. Like demons was really like a thing that they believed and they were very fervent about it. Um, They used to use a lot of amulets as well to ward off these demons. Like they would wear them around their neck or they'd have them. And, you know, they were used to, you know, as protection, basically. Um, Priests would perform exorcisms the same way that you would in like a Christian society. Well, I guess it's a bit... uh It's a bit on the outer now, but I guess back in the day, they were pretty big on exorcisms, I think. Um, A lot of illnesses were put down to the demons, so if you were sick, you could have a demon related illness instead of like a normal illness, like people had their normal illnesses, and then some people would have a demon illness, so there'd be an incantation or a ceremony that'd be used to cure your demon illness rather than your normal illness. So I guess that means they probably had like a demon doctor and a normal doctor. And you'd be like, oh, you know, I got a f- oh, did you hear about Bobby? Bobby got a demon disease. Yeah, he had to go to the demon doctor the other day and get an incant- incantation. It worked pretty well, you know. He's coming back around. He's looking better than ever. So I guess that's kind of how it would have been. Um, but yeah, so you could capture a demon and destroy it. There was a way to kind of do that. And what they would do is they would... Get an image like which would be like a statue or something, and they'd place it above the head of the person with the demon. And then they would say, like, an incantation or something, and the demon would be transferred from the person into this image above the head. And then what they would do is they'd destroy the image with the demon inside of it. So they'd get the statue put in the fire, or break it, or do whatever they had to do, and that would, you know essentially kill the demon and then you know the person would be free from the demon the demon would be dead and everyone was you know super duper happy so they're also heavily into divination and they believed in destiny so the idea was that when you were born everything was kind of predetermined for you in your life kind of kind of same as most people's destiny you know other religions and such but With the uh, Mesopotamians, you were able to find out what your destiny was through omens and rituals and things like this. Um, So often what they would do is they would take like the most mundane, normal, you know, uninteresting things and they would find omens out of them in the sense that like the way that you would often find the will of the gods or what your destiny was, was to drop oil in a cup or observe the entrails of a sacrificed animal, see what the birds were doing. You know, if the birds were flying one way or they were flying another way, or, you know, they're sitting on a tree pecking wood. That was, a, there were omens in that, um, what the stars were doing, like most people, dreams. Um, so basically anything was kind of, um, you know, a, an omen or a ritual. You could kind of find signs in anything. So, I, I, when I was researching it, they kind of were just doing stuff like as I mentioned then oil in the cup and all that sort of thing. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming like you know the way that people are like, oh you know there was a there was a raven with a with a snake in its mouth and you know the forks were upside down when the waiter brought out the entree or something like that. I, I feel like it was just people were trying to find things in their everyday life to kind of make sense of their life, I guess. And that's kind of, it's kind of similar to our day, I guess, in a sense, because, like today, people believe in destiny and omens and, you know, coincidence and things like this. But oftentimes, it's just y- y- people trying to find what they want out of things. Like, um, let's say you want to become a surfer, but you don't near live the you don't live near the beach so you know you're trying to make a decision oh should i move to the beach you know if i move to the beach i got to sell my house i got to find a new house near the beach i got to get a surfboard you know i got to find a new job there like what should i do but realistically you know that you really want to become a surfer and move to the beach so you're walking around the street and you know on the wall there's a mural of a surfer you know you walk past a surf shop and there's just you know a surfboard in the in the window you're driving past a car and the number plates somehow be, make surf or something like that. Like, it's not that these things didn't exist and it's not like they're trying to tell you something. It's just that you're noticing them now because what you want inside of your heart is, you know, truly being presented to you and you're interpreting them in a certain way. Because basically you could take that example again as a negative. You're like, oh, you know, maybe I want to be a surfer, but you're not really sure and you're not really into it. So, you know, you see the mural on the wall that's a surfer but the mural's kind of cracked or you know it's a bit faded and you're like oh maybe that's you know i'll i'll move to california and then my dreams will be you know in shattered because i can't surf that well or whatever or i won't like it and that's what that faded mural means because it's faded you know, or you go to the surf shop and, you know, there's a surf sh- board in the, in the window, but it's already been sold. And you're like, oh, it's already been sold because it's not what I should be doing. You know, it's someone else's dream, not mine. Yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the list goes on. So it's kind of all about interpretation and the way that you interpret things and what you actually want. Like if you want, if you want something, you're basically going to find like omens and things. Like even your name, like, you know, my name's Jake. And, you know, I'll find, you know, actor's names, Jake and people, you know, there'll be like Jake's bar or something like that. And you're like, oh, you know, there's a lot of Jake's about And It's not like there's proportionally more Jake's in the world than any other name. It's just that you notice them because that's what you are. And that's basically what, you know, they're doing back in Mesopotamia. They're like, oh, you know, should I plant corn instead of wheat this year? And you know they're looking for the signs, and oh look, you know there's a snake and it's slithering, and the way that it's slithering kind of looks like cornfields, and you're like, oh, that's a sign, you know, we should plant some corn, and that's kind of how I kind of guess they were doing it, Um, but often they would have to use uh, priests, you know, everyone's trying to make a monopoly on everything, and if you're in a religious society, you know, religion's a good thing to monopolize because everyone's doing it. You can uh, make a bit of money out of it. So you get the priests involved and the priests uh, are the ones who interpret these omens or what's been seen. And often you need two of them, you know, great. Oh, maybe there's a third, you know, you can get a third, you can get a third seer involved. So there's an asker, there's an observer and there's a seer. So, you, you know, got three people involved now so the price has kind of been jacked up a bit um but yeah these priests would interpret your omens for you or even you know do the the ritual of of being omen omenistic for you and um yeah it's often it was often associated with rich craft so the whole idea of using the 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 priests is you know a bit bit iffy but yeah so you know they'll Pretty, pretty into this Destiny thing, and they totally believed that everything was predetermined. And if you saw the signs, you could know what your outcome was going to be. So, the Mesopotamians believe that each person was made as a divine act of creation. So, each person was made specifically by a god. So, you were, it was very intentional that you came into this world and you were created by a god. So, gods are kind of the source of life, the gods created everything. And kind of the gods created you in a sense. And whichever god created you kind of became your town god, your personal deity. And they kind of held the power of you, whether you were sick, you know, whether you were healthy, what your destiny was, the outcome of your life, all that sort of stuff. So it was kind of like having a boss, but for your whole life all the time kind of thing. And your whole life was basically micromanaged by this god that made you. Um, and that was kind of shown by the names that children were given, um, saying that, you know, they were called kind of like called God's gift, basically, or like they were kind of like divine gifts, these children that were made by the gods, you know, and they were to do the gods' will, basically. Um, so the idea as to why the gods would create these people was, you know, a servants. you know, man was created to serve the gods. Um, yeah. So basically man was created to be a servant. Um, the gods are the masters. The man is the servant and the gods will is what the man is trying to perform. I'm not sure why the gods would need to create an inferior being to do anything, but you know, each their own. Um, so with every master and slave situation that every, everyone was kind of individual, but Uh, Each man, when I say man, I mean man in the plural sense of people. Um, So people needed to fear the gods and have the right attitude toward them because, you know, if you had the wrong attitude, your health suffers, you get sick, you you know, your job sucks, you get fired. It's not, you know, not that great. But if you know, if you do have the right attitude, um, you get rewarded with a successful life, a good job, you know, the whole bit. So not only having these these burdens of looking after the gods, being the servants of the gods, but you also had duties to your fellow man. Um, they were kind of written down, but again, they're kind of the same as the way that we would have like, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't, you know, this sort of thing. The duties to men, again, man being people, people to people, person to person, would be, you know, to be honest in trade, to be truthful, no stunning trouble, no murder, all that sort of stuff. So basically they're just like a type of uh, morals, like a morality type situation in which, you know, they kind of had it written down what their morals were. And I guess it was kind of unanimous. Everyone kind of believed that these were what the gods wanted people to be like. So, you know, they would practice that. They wouldn't cheat people. They wouldn't steal. They wouldn't murder, that sort of thing. So the idea was that sin was you rebelling against these previous ideas. So, you know, your duty to God, your duty to your fellow man, whatever it was, anything that happened in your life that was bad was because you did something wrong. And whatever you did wrong warranted the wrath of the gods, no matter how you sinned, Sin always brought the wrath of the gods. There was no mercy. There was no, hey, oh, you've done something wrong here, but we'll, we'll ease up on you because, you know, you're a good bloke. There was none of that. You couldn't really buy your way out of it. If bad stuff was happening to you, it was because you did something wrong, you know. Sins were punished by sickness and misfortune, as we've said. So, you know, basically... Yeah, everyone blamed the gods for everything, but the blame wasn't on the gods per se. It was like, okay, I've sinned, I've done something wrong, and now the gods have caused this to happen in my life. And with that being said, everyone kind of feared the gods and was very, you know, fervent in their religion. So the idea of unknown sin or, you know, unintentional sin became a thing. The idea that you've sinned without knowing But you have definitely sinned because things are going wrong in your life, but you don't actually know how you've sinned. So people are doing everything right. They're fervent. They're, you know, looking after their personal deities. They're praying. You know, they go to the temple. They're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, things are going wrong for them still. And, you know, the idea with this society is, you know, you've you've messed up. You've done something wrong. The gods are angry at you, and this is why these bad things are happening. It's actually very, very rare to find any accounts of actual intentional sin. Like, I, from what I understand, from what I've read, everyone was pretty strict on this stuff. Like, everyone had kind of obeyed the rules. They were real, real, uh, real, uh, rule followers, they were. They didn't really, uh, stray from the path all that much. So, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Then, you know, this is I'm talking about a personal level here, like you know sickness and misfortune on a personal level, but then war and natural disaster was for the whole town. So you could be fervent in your practice, but war comes to your doorstep because the whole town's not doing well. And then you know if the whole town is doing actually doing well, there's the, it goes back to the whole town unintentionally, un, un, uh, un, unintentionally sinning or unknowingly sinning, and because. There was no leniency on sin. You know, you were going to get punished anyway, even if you knew it or not. So, yeah, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard going. But there is kind of like an out. The king was kind of the tool for deliverance. So let's say war comes to your door. You've got some type of misfortune. The king, who is the person who knows what God wants, he he knows God's destiny. He's able to change these outcomes because, you know, He's the king, basically. So, you know, war comes to the door. He goes out in his chariot. He wins the war. That's because he was the king and he knew what God wanted. And, you know, basically he went out and and solved the problem. So that's kind of how, you know, sin and morality was kind of handled. Um, now, often when people think of sin in our days, they think of like uh, a bit of sexy times before the old contract's been signed, you know. A bit of ringless hanky-panky. And uh, that's kind of suggested in Sumerian uh, mythology as well. Um, it's suggested that premarital sex was probably not allowed. Um, marriages were often arranged by the parents. Uh, legal contracts on clay tablets. So kind of similar to how it would be today. Um, w- but they had, you know, dowries and things like that. Um And so, you know, that's a little bit old school for us, but basically it seems like it was, it was kind of the same. Like, you know, once the groom gave the bride's father the dowry, it was kind of made legal in the same way that once we sign a contract today, it's made legal. Um, Yeah. I don't know. We don't really do arrange marriages either anymore. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like an old school Uh, marriage in a sense, like there's dowries, there's, you know, arranged by the parents and it's settled in a legal contract. Um, But again, it's kind of similar like today, depending on which country you live, like especially America, but, you know, maybe less so in uh, Australia or, you know, other, other more, uh, other less religious countries. But um, the, uh, the idea that it was quite common to have premarital sex, but it was very, seripitous um in the sense that you you know it was common to have premarital sex but you just wouldn't tell anyone or, or no one would know because it was still kind of frowned upon but you know it was it was still quite common um but this is basically only in Sumeria where this is the case outside of Sumeria, the mesopotamian societies were you know highly sexualized like especially babylon because uh, babylon seemed to be the uh the Hugh Hefner of, uh, debauched cities in Mesopotamia. It was, um, it was thought to benefit the society to be highly sexualized. Um, gay, trans, prostitution was all tolerated. And sometimes it was sacred. Like you'd have the sacred trans dude or, you know, the sacred prostitute that if you're banged, you'd get good stuff happen. Like there was a lot of like reverence for sex and, in Babylon, they would worship like, um, Marduk was the man, but then Inan was often worshipped and it was quite prevalent to have an Inan temple in your area of Babylon. And she was the goddess of, uh, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll basically. Um, and to worship Inan, you would have an intense frenzied dancing session as part of the worship. So if you've ever been to a nightclub in the last 10 years, you will, uh, You'll see some intense frenzied dancing, um, which often leads to sex. So you know, you know, good, good way to, uh, good way to get from uh, not having sex to sex to be doing these frenzied dancing. So you know, Inan was was basically d- down for it. Um, her shtick was like nothing was restricted. You could do whatever you want, and she was down for it. So. You know, yeah, uh, Washington was basically being the atheist or agnostic of the old world, uh, Mesopotamia, because you could just do basically whatever you want, especially in Babylon and outside of Sumerian culture. Mm-hmm. There's even an idea that if you were having sex, it would remove you from the limitations of this world and cross your conscious over into another world the trance of uh, sexual ecstasy or something like this. So sex was seen as going to another realm and it was beneficial and what everyone should do to worship Inan properly, basically. So with all this, we're getting to the end of our podcast today. And you know, the end of life is the afterlife, and the end of our podcast is going to be about the afterlife, um, which is kind of bleak in uh, Mesopotamian religions um, because there's no paradise. Uh, Mesopotamians didn't have a paradise. Uh, there was an afterlife, but there wasn't a paradise. It was there was only the underworld, and it honestly it wasn't really that great from what I uh, I've read. Um, the, uh, the afterlife or the underworld was literally below our world. So, you know, the gods were literally above us. We were on the sphere of the earth, which is, you know, where we are. And then the underworld was literally below our sphere. Um, and everybody went there, no matter who you were, you could be the king, you could be a peasant, you could be, you know, a good guy, you could be a bad guy, didn't matter what happened. Everyone was going to the same spot. The benefit of being good was to benefit your life that you were living as you were alive. But in the afterworld, everything was kind of the same. It wasn't considered to be a punishment or a reward. It was it was just where you went. Like, you know, your destiny was done on the earth and now you know your immortal soul has to go somewhere. So you know, the underworld. And kind of what happened in the underworld is you kind of this weak powerless ghost basically you kind of just float around in the underworld it's kind of like it's kind of like an emo concert basically you 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 going around you're you're a ghost there's nothing much you can really do you kind of move about a little bit but you know you can't really do much because you're kind of powerless you're weak you're thin I'm sure you don't have the same hairdo as an emo concert but you know that's kind of how it how it was um, and there's this this idea kind of comes from uh, the myth of Ishtar descending into the underworld, which is a, a myth, a Sumerian myth. And I shall read an extract, which is uh, pretty rare for this one. Um, but it says, dust is their food and clay is their nourishment. They see no light where they dwell in darkness. So... Yeah, it doesn't sound like a nice place. Not really a place I would want to go. Um, and kind of that's that was the cycle of man. It wasn't really a cycle. It was that you were made by the gods. You lived your life on earth, however long that was, depending on how good you were. And you kind of went to this everlasting, lifeless place that didn't really have much stimulation, basically. And yeah, that was the end, I guess. Um, but that's not... I don't think this cycle was supposed to last forever. From what I've read, there there isn't any tales of how the world was supposed to end or how this cycle of human creation and destruction was supposed to uh, end. But they definitely believe that it would end. So there's probably some sort of world-ending myth that we just haven't found yet. Um, Berossus wrote that the world would last twelve times. Twelve sars. Now you may be asking, what's a sar, Jake? Okay, so a sar is three thousand six hundred years. You're welcome. So doing the math, twelve times twelve is one hundred forty-four. So one hundred forty-four sars is three thousand six hundred years times one hundred forty-four, which is five thousand one hundred and no, yeah, five hundred and eighteen thousand. 400 years. So let me get that right. 518,400 years and the world was end. So we are in the year 2000 and they were in the year 3000 BC. So that's 5000. So, you know, we're, we're not even through the uh, the first of the fourth digits yet. So we've still got plenty of time to go and not, all, not everyone can freak out. So thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, That's the end of today's episode. Um, I do have to apologize for the time delay. I think the last time I released a podcast was when I was in Bolivia. So that was September and it's now November So I have been quite slack and I do apologize. Um, Also, I was slack in actually recording this because I started this about three weeks ago recording it. The research was done probably a month before that. And honestly, I've just got finished with it right this second, which is November 27th. So yeah, very, very slack. It's been recorded in three different countries um but yeah so finished at home so hopefully everything's all good um yeah today's uh today's area was not the best uh, I had a snoring pug that was uh, interrupting the podcast and also people were blowing next door so that also wasn't great um and also I kind of got over having it on my plate uh because it was very very hard to do because I don't know the subject matter that well so I did all the research myself and I had to use a lot of notes and the research took you know a lot longer than it usually would so yeah and this is basically going to be part one there's going to be at least three or four parts in this to get like kind of an overview of what Mesopotamian religion was like and this is basically 101 this is the primer this is this is the starting block Uh, after this podcast you can basically know enough to talk to someone and be like, oh yeah, that's kind of Mesopotamian. I know what a Mesopotamian religion religions kind of like. And you know, you could probably have a conversation with this. Um, but yeah, so at the end, it kind of got a little bit dry and boring. I also have a cold at the moment. So the voice probably wasn't the best, but I do, I do apologize and the quality will improve. I promise. And I think for the next few episodes, I might go to a a research one that is more in my wheelhouse, uh, kind of like maybe uh, Did Jesus Die on the Cross or something like that, um, and, you know, get back to a few of the Bible ones because I kind of pump them out pretty quickly, and, yeah, then I'll get into back into this Mesopotamian religion stuff because, honestly, it was super interesting doing the research and learning all about it, so I'm going to keep on keeping on, but yeah so i do apologize for that um if you want to send me an email with any uh, queries concerns problems anything you hate about me anything you love about me you can send that to religionretold at gmail.com and if you want to uh, check out the instagram page that's religion retold on instagram and yeah so thank you thank you very much and enjoy your day